With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina from Sports Illustrated. Michael, we're going to like triple, quadruple, quintuple down on the Brooklyn Nets talk later in this episode. They took an unbelievably embarrassing double overtime loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers last night. It was the first game where they had all three stars aligned. There was some good. There was some bad. There was some ugly there was some what is going on with Steve Nash uh, developing already in game one for Brooklyn, but we're going to table that until the second half of this episode. I wanted to start with something that you wrote earlier this week about Portland Trailblazers guard CJ McCollum. Um, I just wanted to welcome you to the illustrious group of Sports Illustrated jinxers. I'm sure, it, <laughs> as they say on the internet, Michael, it probably hits a little bit different uh, once you're actually jinxing on behalf of Sports Illustrated rather than just jinxing in your everyday life. But I was hoping you could walk me through that three-day period because it seems like you got some nice uh, exclusive access or, or interview time with CJ McCollum. If I'm not mistaken, you made some sort of a comment about, hey, try to stay healthy. And then he immediately got injured for the first time in five years, like 24 hours later. Can you just clarify that timeline for me? And and what was the goal of the piece you were writing? Yeah. So, you know, I reached out uh, earlier in the week to see if CJ would be willing to chat about his, I mean, I, I call it a breakout season, but it's not, it's not really a breakout season like everyone knows CJ is really good, but he was just shooting a lot more threes and averaging a lot more points. And if he stayed healthy, he would have been an all-star for sure. So I wanted to talk to him primarily about the increase in his three-point volume um, and just why he suddenly decided to shoot more threes, which is something that I've always wanted for him, knowing that he just has this huge obsession with the mid-range, which is fine, but threes are better. Um, So, you know, he agreed. And then Friday night we chatted for a little while and he was great it was an awesome interview and we actually i asked him point blank about you know 
are you shooting more threes because like you want to stay healthy you want to preserve your body and you know he fractured his back in the bubble famously and played through that injury um and so during this weird season like are you shooting more threes so you don't have to go into the pain etc and that was partially uh the reason for the adjustment there were more reasons for it than that more goes into it of course but he definitely uh, admitted to you know shooting more threes because he didn't want to go toe to toe with seven footers unnecessarily, and then of course a day later <clears throat> he drives into the paint and Clint Capella steps on his foot, and uh, you know I was joking with you like I told CJ like please don't get injured before my article comes out on Monday, and of course he just didn't live up to his end of the bargain, which is a shame. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I love CJ. I hope he gets better. Um, what was really difficult for me just as a writer, which is absolutely insignificant in the grand scheme of this because a human being got hurt. But, you know, you get the the initial report is just a sprained foot. So, you know, he might be out a week, uh, two weeks, day to day, potentially. You know, I was feeling pretty optimistic about yeah. it. Like story saved. Don't worry, editors. Everything's yeah. fine. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, the day that the article is supposed to go out, we get news that, like, after I wrote the whole thing, um, news that it's actually a fractured uh, foot and that he'll be out significantly longer, which is a bummer for him. It's a bummer for the Portland Trailblazers, a team that I was really enjoying watching. You know, Yusuf Nurkic also had a really bad um, fractured wrist. Uh, I believe, uh, suffered a couple days prior. So they just, I mean, it's, you know this, Ben, being from where you're from, like the Portland Trailblazers are a cursed organization and it's it stinks. It stinks a lot. I mean, just a brutal one-two blow for Portland. They're playing really well and to lose, you know, Nurkic and McCollum in a short time period definitely changes the trajectory of their season, at least here in the short term. Now, they've also been through this. I mean, Damian Lillard knows how to put a team on his back and just tread water until guys get back healthy. So I don't want to write them off completely by any stretch. Um, I still think they're going to be a playoff team, although it's going to take a lot of grinding uh, for them to kind of get that, uh, you know, at the finish line, because there are a bunch of teams still clogged up there in the middle of the Western Conference. And to me, their hopes of being, you know, in a best case scenario, like the three seed of the West, which is what they were kind of angling for, I think, coming into the season, um, that one's probably sailed, right? But mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're still absolutely in the mix to be a playoff team. And they're going to be a team that, you know, the, the top... Uh, a couple seeds aren't going to want to play if they're able to make it to the playoffs. Um, just to kind of provide context on what you're talking about with CJ's breakthrough season or, or, or career year, whatever it might be. I mean, last year he's averaging 22 and four. This year he's up to 27 and five, shooting 44% on threes, averaging 11 three pointers per game. And there's actually been a real rush, high volume trend of, of three point shooting, not only among individual players but of entire teams to start this Mm -hmm. season. We're seeing them just launch and launch and launch and launch three-pointers. And look, we've been so deep in this Steph Curry three-point revolution now, five, six years into it, that it all kind of runs together. And it's, it's, you know, tough as just a casual viewer when you're watching a game, just, wow, it seems like a lot of three-pointers. But when you dig into the numbers, it's like skyrocketing, especially among the teams who are taking the absolute most. And so CJ, from that sense, was right on trend. And he should have been. He's an incredible shooter. Um, You could have made the case he should have been shooting a lot more three-pointers than he was these last couple of years. And it was good to see him do it. And it wasn't surprising at all to see him hit it. So um, where that ended up for him, whether it was going to be an all-star berth or not, 
you know, I, I wasn't completely convinced he was going to be able to have the name recognition to kind of squeeze on there, given how many talented guards there are in the Western Conference. But he was certainly like, you know, peaking, uh, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, really getting to the best version of himself. And it was, uh, you know, transitioning into a really impressive offense for Portland. So just a bummer. Where do you see them picking up the pieces here, you know, during CJ's absence and, um, and, and Nurkic's absence? How would you try to manipulate around those guys uh, in terms of lineups and, and who steps up to fill the void? And then where do you think they're going to come back to earth? I mean, am I being too optimistic? Is this a team, you know, if you lose two of your best three guys for that long, that has to fall into the play-in round or, or potentially even worse in the West? Or, or what do you think, Michael? Yeah, I mean, before <clears throat> the injuries, their defense wasn't very good. Their offense was typical Portland awesomeness with Dame and CJ, as we said. Um, you know, I'm expecting or hoping that Anthony Simons uh, can step up. He's going to get more minutes uh, for sure in CJ's absence. he, I think that they were very high on him coming into last season. He uh, struggled a little bit. Um, he's very young last season, uh, and so far this season hasn't really popped in the way that his athleticism and I think his skill set really indicates someday he will. So hopefully that happens now. That would be perfect timing for Portland. Uh, they really need it. Um, and then, like, I think Nurkic is also Wait, just a huge... Do we shirt. really believe in Simons, though? I mean, before we get to the Nurkic side of things, because that, <laughs> that one's tough. Like, they've been selling mm. Simons for a long time. It sounds good in theory. Um, you know, every once in a while, he'll do something that gets the fans super excited. Is he really that night-to-night guy, though, Michael? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm speaking as someone who, you know, when you profile... I profiled Anthony Simons... Uh, two summers ago i believe See, that's <laughs> almost as dangerous as drafting him yourself michael look <laughs> you know the number one people who will never ever give up are the people who invest a draft pick in a guy because it's like that's my guy i'm riding with him i saw his potential when he was younger and i just want to see it uh, through to the very end number two in that group is the guy who pre-draft profiles him or or you know before he takes yeah. his nba debut profile because mm-hmm. now you're just locked in forever. That one cost me on Wiggins for like three years, Michael, because I got a great <laughs> interview with him when he was like 16 years old. He told me he wanted to be a combo of, of uh, LeBron James and Kevin Durant. He's actually playing okay here the last week or two, but I would say he's fallen just slightly short of that <laughs> incredible hybrid standard here during the course of his career. So what you're saying is you're never going to give up. Um look, you know, when you talk to someone's parents, when someone is really nice to you, it's it's hard to just, you know, trash them. I will say that he just, yeah, he just hasn't been as good as I thought he would be, as good as everyone I spoke to. And, you know, there's people like Neil O'Shea who drafted him who are very high on him, obviously. But then there's other people who were no longer even working with him, um, who also had nothing but positive things to say. So, it's it's super been it's been super frustrating so far um but yeah like i said like the timing couldn't be better for him to establish himself this is year 3 he's still only 21 years old i believe but usually year 3 is when you kind of make a little bit of a leap and right now he's shooting 30% from the floor so that's just that's not going to cut it um but real quick like beyond him you know Gary Trent Jr um you know, they have Robert Covington coming over. He's not really going to make plays for you, but he can hit some shots. Uh, they have some Rodney pieces, Hood, I think. maybe. Rod- yeah, Rodney Hood. Um, a big fan of Rodney Hood. He's another one, even though I didn't profile him. I'm just on Rodney Hood Island for the rest of my life for some reason. 
Um, uh, I so, did profile him pretty early on his crew, and it was really looking good for him as a pick and roll guy in Utah. Yeah. Another guy whose career kind of took a sideways, uh, a yeah. sideways turn there. But uh, we don't need to get <laughs> too deep into all of like Portland's like quasi disappointments on you, their you, bench. You, you don't want to make this a Rodney Hood pod. I was ready. No, it's probably better not. I mean, look, we've got <laughs> Kevin Durant and Zion to get to, Michael. Let's not dwell here. What do you think about the front court? Um, you know, there's a bunch of teams right now that could actually use some help, you know, in the front court market. If I was Detroit or Cleveland sitting on extra centers, I'd be feeling like, great, this is a seller's market. You know, JaVale McGee, auction him off to the highest bidder, whether it's Washington and their injury issues, Brooklyn and uh, their need for, for depth behind DeAndre Jordan. Maybe Portland needs somebody to plug in. Do you believe in Harry Giles? Is he the answer? I mean, do you just close your eyes and just pray with Enos Cantor? I mean, what do you do? Is this where I say that I also profiled Enos Cantor? Um, well, and... that is the least surprising thing of all time. If there's yeah. one guy who would just <laughs> definitely sit down for like a 3,000-word green beer profile with Michael Pina, it's Enos Cantor. So, yeah, no, I, you know, uh, Cantor, everybody knows his game by now. It, it hasn't really changed since he's entered the league. Uh, I don't think he's going to solve any of their defensive woes. Uh, Harry Giles is, you know, um, I think they're fortunate that they got him at the price that they did during the offseason because I think he's really talented and now he can show it. But so far what I've seen, especially on the defensive end, he has a long way to go. So I'm not, you know, I'm not super optimistic about the front court right now either. I think they'll have to play small quite a bit. I'm worried Harry Giles might be one of those guys whose destiny is to not play and have the fans wish he played more rather than play and have everybody hope he plays less, if that yeah. makes sense, right? Like there's certain guys where it's like, yeah, it sounds so great. Like we've got this guy as a second or third stringer. It's too bad he can't get more rotation minutes. And then you really have to trust him because you're in a pinch. And you're like, oh, God, um, well, no, he's not exactly what we were hoping for in his best moments when he was able to just kind of like, you know, get some running garbage time or whatever else. We'll see. I mean, it's there are worse backup situations. They've been in more dire straits here over the last couple of years from a depth standpoint than they are this year. That was part of the reason why we like their offseason, Michael, is because they went out and spent so much money and and made a bunch of moves and invested some draft picks to fill out rotation so maybe they get a little bit less conventional with how they try to fill those minutes and maybe get a little bit smaller in certain cases but um big blows both ways i don't think that they've got anyone in that second unit who's going to step up and give you you know 80 percent of what the other guy was and and that's why i think they're going to come back to earth a little bit but they you know damian lillard kind of likes this situation don't you think doesn't he kind of savor this idea of like oh injuries around me all right write us off you know here we go it's time to go into superhero mode and we haven't necessarily seen that version of Dame yet this season. He's been good, uh, but not into that MVP, crazy bubble explosion, Damian Lillard territory. And, uh, you know, maybe ultimately that's the biggest answer for Portland. Um, let's shift gears to Zion Williamson because you also wrote about him this week, as did I for my newsletter at the Washington Post. You know, I was digging into some of the numbers around Zion. And he's playing pretty well. At least he's producing pretty well. The Pelicans have really struggled. They're well below 500, not in the playoff picture right now. And they're just kind of a weird and very different team. Stan Van Gundy looked at his roster and his personnel, and he just said, you know what? We're not going to be able to play modern basketball. We don't have enough shooters. We don't have the capability to have perfect spacing on offense. And on defense, we've got these two bigs with Steven Adams and, and Zion Williamson, who are, are kind of the bully ball 
uh, Bash Brothers approach that we discussed uh, entering the season, Michael. And it's played out exactly that way. These guys rebound very well. They don't shoot the ball from three very well. They don't defend the three very well because they're always in the paint, but they do defend the rim quite well and, and the basket area quite well. And so they're, you know, a little bit of a dinosaur team right now, and it's not exactly working for them. And then even schematically, they're saying, you know, we're going to make compromises. We're not going to be able to guard everybody's three-point shooters. So you go back to Christmas, they just get lit up by Duncan Robinson. I think he had, what, 42 three-pointers on Christmas, something like that. Um, (laughs) And he's not the only one who's been able to do that to New Orleans. Now, on certain nights, they're able to kind of get by if the other team's cold or just, you know, things aren't going for them. Their strategy is a similar almost in a way to like what Milwaukee wants to do, which is encourage you to shoot threes, hope you miss them, and then just, you know, outscore you on the other end. But it doesn't always work that way, in part because their shooting has been super hit or miss. Eric Bledsoe is still Eric Bledsoe, unfortunately, and Lonzo really hasn't made the leap that some people were hoping for uh, from him as well. So in terms of the Zion conversation, I guess my conclusion after looking at everything, Michael, was... If he's going to be a franchise-level player that we expected, uh, he can't have such a narrow impact as he has uh, displayed so far this year. He's unbelievable in the paint. He's finishing great through traffic. I think he takes like 90% of his shots from within 10 feet. He bulldozes people. He gets the highlight rim dunks. It's very difficult to keep him off the offensive glass. He's been as expected, uh, as advertised in that sense. But pretty much outside of the paint, he's doing almost nothing. You're not really seeing him, you know, pass or facilitate in any way. Like you can't really throw the ball to him on the elbow, have him go to work. He's not shooting three pointers at all after his uh, initial debut that I went to go, vis- uh, you know, down to New Orleans to see in person last year. The three po- and the three pointers were a huge part of that I- exciting performance. All that stuff is totally gone. And then defensively, he has a really hard time covering ground out to three-point shooters, closing out, uh, you know, making the the extra effort plays on the perimeter. He gets a lot of hustle stats uh, because he does play hard, but you're asking a lot of a guy that big to track, you know, three-point shooters and stretch forwards out to mm-hmm. the perimeter and do all those kinds of things too. So the challenge, I think, for New Orleans right now is, as I put it, they have to expand his spheres of influence, right? They've got to get him to be more than just a paint player on offense. They've got to kind of get him more comfortable in whatever role it's going to be defensively so that they can do a better job of guarding the three-point line than they have uh, recently. And I don't know if that comes with time and development for Zion. I don't know if that comes with better conditioning for Zion. I don't know if it's a schematic change or potentially a lineup change, uh, you know, from Stan Van Gundy that kind of helps Zion, you know, get into some more advantageous situations. Uh, But right now, he's a little bit of a one-trick pony And when you're the number one overall pick, a guy who's supposed to be a franchise level player, that's not quite good enough. Uh, You know what I mean? Yeah. um, You know, I I kind of am okay right now with what Zion is, and I put more of the blame on the roster, which you outlined really well, just how they've tried to build around him, bringing in Steven Adams, who is this old school center who has made one three-pointer in his entire career. So if like Zion is the is is your guy and you're trying to accentuate his his strengths. Real quick, you just, you, was yeah. was that a heave too? I'm pretty sure it was a heave. Steven Adams won probably. Yeah, I want to say was. it was like a half court shot, some crazy shot put type shot. Maybe I'll Google it while you keep talking. Yeah, I think you're 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 spot on there. But um but yeah, like Zion, 
is a guy who dominates in the paint. He's averaging, he leads the league in points in the paint. He uh, has, he's averaging more points in the paint than Giannis did during both of his MVP seasons, which I, a little stat I put in my column, which really kind of shocked me, frankly, because Giannis was dominant. And then I went back and compared him to Shaq, and Shaq averaged 20 points uh, in the paint during his uh, 29-year-old season. Um, with the Los Angeles Lakers when he was just out of his mind, MVP, best player alive, most dominant force ever seen. So, like, for Shaq to only be averaging a point more than Zion is right now in the paint is really telling me something. And, like, when I look at Zion's shot chart, I'm kind of like, okay, so this is basically Ben Simmons, except Zion is more aggressive and he has better touch and he can finish in a lot of different ways. So let's take advantage of that. Let's not, uh, I, I guess, like, I, I, I see where you're coming from and trying to dwell on uh, some of his flaws, for sure. Like, the fact that he's only hit one shot outside the paint and it came in their last game is, that's not really what you want. I mean, you want a, a, a player to be able to stretch the defense a little bit. But if he's going to be in the paint and dominate in the paint, then let's put guys around him who can help him do that. And so if you look at how the roster is built, the only way you can really make that happen is by playing Zion at the five. And, you know, defensively, that's just, I think, a non-starter for Stan Van Gundy, who, as you said, really wants to pack the paint. He really wants to uh, mimic what the Milwaukee Bucks have done so well over the past couple seasons. Um, but the thing is, like, they've they've limited attempts at the rim. They've done a really good job at that. But once teams get shots at the rim, they're like the second worst defense protecting the basket in the entire NBA. So I just, you know, I look at their defense. It's it's not good, below average, and I'm kind of like, okay. If you were this bad with Zion and Steven Adams on the floor, with Zion and Jackson Hayes on the floor, then just play Zion at the five, and who cares about uh, the defensive rating so much, and just try to outscore teams, play faster, shoot more threes. I just, I think in the NBA, if you want to win at a high level, let alone just trying to make the playoffs, that's the side that you need to lean into a little bit more than protecting your defense which it's not even working out anyway so you might as well just go all in on trying to score the ball as efficiently as possible no it's amazing their defense hasn't been able to be better because they do have a number of good defensive pieces like you know you look at a guy like Lonzo you look at Bledsoe you look at Adams and right there you would expect hey like we have enough to have a good defense right even if just Zion's average and Brandon Ingram's average on that end you would think you would have enough talent, but it all comes back to the fit of having those two bigs who struggle to, to cover ground and give up a lot of open shots. And then, you know, Ingram to me is just a disappointing defensive player, right? He's not a physical defensive player. He's not very disruptive. I think he drifts a lot. It, it just is clearly it's not his cup of tea. He'd much rather just have the ball in his hands and go to work. I respect it, but that's kind of where he is, right? So Stan Van Gundy actually kind of challenged his two stars last week and was pointing out to the Lakers stars, the Clippers stars, the Bucks star duos and saying, these guys are all two-way players. You know, they're the ones who are part of the solution on defense. You guys have to be that as well. And I think that's true, but I do think the fit issues hold Zion back. I mean, it's really, really rough to watch him closing out. I mean, he's so late 
it's not just that he's getting lost in schemes. It's that his body cannot move from point A to point B as fast as it needs to. And if you keep the ball moving around the perimeter on offense, you're going to be able to find an open shot. New Orleans' defense won't be able to keep up with you. Now, in terms of what you're describing stylistically and possible lineup changes, I think you've hit on a really key point. In the modern NBA, you can't be ugly and bad. It's just that does not work, right? So, like, as, if opp- you're, as opposed to the old NBA where ugly and bad was a, a profitable venture. Well, there was like a good 15 years there where you could kind of get by being ugly sure. and bad. And, and there were so many other teams that played ugly and bad that it was kind of like, hey, we're all in the mix here together. Um, you know, th- we've come a long way from an aesthetic standpoint, in all seriousness, in the NBA. It's a, it's a much yeah. more beautiful game now than it was, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, so you can't be ugly and bad. And I think what Stan Van Gundy was expecting was to be ugly and decent, right? Let's just be weird. Let's be different. And I think what you're arguing for is like, well, ugly and decent's too high of a bar. Uh, we're not going to reach that. So why don't we just be pretty and bad, right? Why don't we just have a lot of fun with Lonzo running up and down the court, have a lot of fun with Zion running up and down the court, not worry so much about, you know, trying to, you know, zag when everybody else is zigging and just get a little bit more modern in the lineups and just, you know, put more explosiveness on the court together from an offensive standpoint, right? And I could see the argument for that. I do think it's a little bit early to go there. I I could see there being some adjustment once they've decided to throw in the towel on this season. Uh, But I do think that it's worth pointing out, even though these systems were designed to kind of you know, play to New Orleans' strengths, it hasn't necessarily set up either one of their best players for a lot of success. Ingram's been good, but he's not carrying a winning team again. Zion's been good. He's getting his numbers. He's been productive. But again, the whole thing is not really revolving around him. And I think long-term from the NBA, that's a big problem. Guys expect to be fully comfortable. Guys expect to have everything built around them. And there's sort of a, a ticking clock in those kinds of situations where if it's not working and the stars aren't necessarily flourishing, uh, it becomes a situation where there's going to be some tension down the road. They're not there yet. I mean, this is obviously year one with Stan and and this group uh, you know, fully healthy with Zion back on the court, but it is a little bit troubling early on. And I do think we're seeing one compromise already happening, which is Stan Van Gundy saying, Zion, grab defensive rebounds and go. Try to find some offense in transition. To me, that makes so much sense. You mentioned the Giannis comparison. There's also the Blake Griffin comparison out there. Those guys were awesome, pushing tempo, getting easy offense, using their physicality and their size and strength combination and their instincts in the open court, especially earlier in their career, to just kind of get easier baskets and to you know create good opportunities for their teammates. It's a little bit easier to find the open man say on a four on three break or a three on two break than it is within the half court. Um, And so I'm glad that they're encouraging Zion to do that. I think it's an absolute no brainer, but I think that's going to be the next step for Zion. It's going to be difficult for him to develop a knockdown three point shot, but he's going to have to get a little bit more into the point forward stuff that Blake Griffin did that Giannis did to help open up their offense and to help create some level of spacing. Because if you don't have him as a passer and all he is, is a driver and a dunker, you're just, you know, even if you play him at the five, I think you're going to have some spacing issues there as well. And if you play him with Adams, then you definitely do because that guy's completely paint bound. So whether it's pick and rolls where Zion gets to have the ball in his hands, whether it's encouraging him to, um, you know, just be on the perimeter and, and make decisions, draw help and kick out, uh, you know, with, with drive and kick stuff, 
I, to me, that is sort of the central avenue of development that will help the Pelicans a lot. And it needs to happen now. Like, I don't think that they can be waiting on this for year after year after year. Zion's got to start making progress in that direction here basically immediately. I think a lot of your points are tied to what I'm saying about the need to kind of surround him with the right pieces, right? Particularly as a playmaker where he's really good in space. And when he has room with it, like you throw him the ball at the elbow and uh, you have four guys behind the three-point line who can shoot or are at least respectable with the, in terms of their gravity, like he's getting to the basket in one dribble easily and he's drawing help and he's finding guys um, but it's just so rare that he has those opportunities because of the lineups that he's in a majority of the time which is a shame but one of the more interesting things that we should probably mention going back to his inability to close out on defense which is just I mean that's a prerequisite for the style that Stan Van Gundy wants to play when you're the low man as Zion so often is where you basically are in the paint in help situations trying to prevent the role the opposing role man um, from really doing damage and you know when the ball gets sprayed out you have to sprint to the three-point line to to contest or to uh, prevent a drive which Zion can't really do and when I watch Zion do that I honestly shudder because I'm worried about his health like it's not easy to do those little like like going zero to 60 as quick as he does stopping on a dime which he often doesn't do and i wonder if it's because he's worried about his lower body or some body part that uh, you know it's very it's a lot of stress it's physical strain and so maybe that that playing style just doesn't mesh with who he is um, more physically than mentally and so when you play him at the five obviously he can guard more uh more paint bound uh, big men and and not be on the perimeter as much as he otherwise would be. So I think that that's something that we should we should monitor going forward. He needs those like superhero retractable gloves that can give him an extra I don't know eight inches of wingspan. Right, if he could have like longer fingers extend out from his hands so that he could be a little bit more capable defensively at the center position. Ultimately, that's kind of what's holding him back. You know, I, I look at def- on defense right now. In college, he was able to cover the ground um, in part because the shooters weren't as good, in part because the court's a little bit more packed in college, and in part because his physical advantages were more pronounced at the college level than they are here, and he was able to just dominate the paint. There wasn't guys who were playing over the top of him that much. There has been a real adjustment for Zion defensively coming to the NBA where playing him at the five sounds good in theory, and it will definitely work against a lot of teams' second units where they don't have a, a big center. But there's a lot of a lot of guys who can exploit him because he's not the longest, uh, because he's not necessarily a traditional, you know, rim protecting guy. He he blocks a lot of shots and often in spectacular fashion because he's got the um, the leaping ability and he's got just the general athletic tools uh, and he's actually blocks a lot of jump shots too. Uh, but great timing. Yeah, but it's it's not that traditional. Like I'm gonna you know just park me in front of the paint and I'm gonna hold this thing down. He's not really that guy. And I do think their defense would be noticeably worse if they went to him at the five for longer stretches. And I don't totally know how he gets around that. I I feel like he's kind of caught without a position right now defensively. I I don't necessarily see him as a five defensively. And the four stuff, he's just getting sniped. And and so that's tricky. And it's a fundamental question New Orleans is going to have to kind of figure out 
They almost need like a unicorn center shot blocking five who can also shoot threes as his partner to kind of make it work. And it's the same thing that we used to say about a Blake Griffin for years and years and years. You know, what's the ideal combination for him? Um, And uh, right now they've got Steven Adams, who's not especially athletic offensively and a non-shooter. And then he's also not like this big time, you know, shot blocking guy. I mean, I think ideally you would want to have like a young Serge Ibaka, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Well, we just have to find one, Michael. We'll look around for him. I'm not sure <laughs> where we're going to locate him. And, and that's part of the challenge. And it's tough when your superstar guy has to have um, compromises or specific fits around him to make things work. It definitely diminishes his value. So it's just something to keep an eye on as New Orleans goes forward. But um, so far, we, we came in with a lot of fit questions about the Pelicans. And I think we're dealing with just the same number of fit questions now after watching them play for a month. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability and big savings you want get spectrum one just $49.99 a month for 12 months visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details offer subject to change valid for qualified residential customers only service not available in all areas restrictions apply all right michael let's shift gears because we got a very passionate email from mckay in utah he writes it's mac from utah podcast is amazing as always I'm curious on what you think of the Utah Jazz. Can you believe that he would want to know about the Jazz, Michael? It stuns me. I watch them frequently, and they are really, really good. They beat the Bucks, Clippers, and Nuggets in a span of three weeks. They hold the third-best defense in the NBA, along with the third-best record. They're on a five-game winning streak, and they're just flat-out good, and Donovan Mitchell hasn't even played that well yet. 
Is it because they allowed Murray to go MJ mode on them in the bubble and now people just disregard them because they went out in the first round? Is it the small market thing? Is it both? I hear people talk about Portland and Dallas so much more, but in my mind, the Jazz are a top three team in the West. I'm sure I'm just delusional, but I'd love to know your thoughts. Mac, you're not delusional. You just gave us the facts about how they're a top three team in the Western Conference right now. So, you know, you can feel confident in your facts. Michael, break it down for me. Why is Utah having so much success? What do you like about them? I suspect Matt Mac would love some generic praise for the Jazz. So give it to him if you're ready or poke holes in their resume if you're not. Uh, I love the Jazz. I think they're really good. I was really high on them coming into this season. They're 6-0 and in the last two weeks. They're outscoring opponents by over 20 points per 100 possessions in non-garbage time minutes over that span, which is just an absolutely wild margin to sustain over any multi-game stretch. Um, in a really, really small sample size, they also have the best defense in the NBA against opposing top 10 offenses, which is definitely something to monitor. And if they keep that up, then they should be considered a title contender, in my opinion. Um, they are first in opposing effective field goal percentage. They are first in uh, opposing free throw rate. Uh, you know, the defense is the defense offensively. The big story is obviously, as you alluded to earlier when we were talking about C.J. McCollum, like three-point shooting. Like last year, 38% of their shots were threes. This year, it's 44%, which is second highest in the league. And they're also the second most accurate team shooting the three ball. So just on a, a macro level, they're exceptional and they have the profile of a championship contender. Uh, on a micro level... Uh, no pun intended. Mike Conley is incredible. Um, he's the exact guy that they thought they were uh, trading for last season. He looks really comfortable running their offense. He's making the floaters. He's making his threes. He's conducting uh, a really efficient unit every time he's on the floor. And they're doing all of this without... Like Donovan Mitchell has looked pretty good in spots, and he's, he's starting to shoot the three ball a lot better than the slump he was in earlier in the season. Same with uh, Bojan Bogdanovic. But, like, I think both of those guys can get even better um, than they've been. Um, and, you know, just watching Donovan, I want to quickly highlight, like, those midair wraparound shortstop to first base passes that he throws. Those are, like, my favorite thing in the entire NBA uh, every time it happens. So keep an eye on out for those whenever they do occur. Um, but, no, I'm just obviously a huge fan of the Jazz and I have a feeling that you are not as high on them as I am, Ben. You would be wrong. Like the oh. Jazz, like the Jazz. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to try my absolute hardest in shameless fashion to to really make Mac feel great. Mac, one of the coolest hip urban clubs for a while there was Jay-Z's Forty Forty Club, Michael. And guess what? The Utah Jazz right now are the only team in the NBA in the Forty Forty Club. 40% three-point shooting, more than 43-point attempts per game. That means the Utah Jazz are on the cutting edge of modern basketball philosophy after years of not really being there, kind of the center of the universe. There's no hotter club than the three-point line where guys like Bogdanovich and, and uh, Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell are just spotting up all day long. They're the center of NBA intelligentsia right now, Michael. I'm so 
jealous again of you. And, you know, if that line pops up in a column of mine, I don't want you to get upset for me obviously stealing it. Um, but you, I just mean, you look, hit the nail on the bottom head. Bottom line, you, you could steal all my stuff. Just say at Ben Doc Oliver on Instagram. It's all I care about is the IG follows, Michael. <laughs> That is very dark, but uh, I will do that for you. Um, no, I mean, you you hit it right on the head, man. Like, if you're shooting three, a lot of threes and you're making a lot of threes, then you're a very good basketball team in today's NBA. I know we're, we're dumbing it down a little bit, and Royce O'Neal and Jordan Clarkson are, like, just fireballs that I would think their sh- outside shooting is not sustainable. But like I said earlier, like, some of the other three-point shooters who we expect more of have also been cold. So... I, I just think this team is 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 awesome, and I'm really interested to see if they make any moves before the trade deadline, more aggressive. I don't even know what they would need. I've always thought that, you know, basically every team needs more perimeter defense because Royce O'Neal is kind of their shutdown guy, and when they go up against the big boys in L.A., you know, against Kawhi, against LeBron, they're going to need someone who can at least uh, like not get bowled over in the post and and require uh, a double coverage so um that's like the guy that they need that they're missing piece in my opinion but it's besides that they look really really good no i hear you look and i should also point out they're the only 40 40 club member ever michael i mean jack and 43 pointers a game hasn't been done very many times you know coming into the season now a whole bunch of teams are doing it um, this year at least to start and, and it may regress a little bit and you do worry I think if you're a Jazz fan that your three-point shooting number will regress as the season goes along and you know maybe guys get injured or they get uh, banged up or you know fatigued at certain points or whatever else but it's a phenomenal start it's sort of their defining quality in addition to their defense but the reason why nobody takes your team seriously Mac it's the same reason as every year you don't have a top 10 guaranteed certified superstar type guy those guys get a lot of attention you're not in a major coastal market so i'm sure you're used to that by now and you have a lot to prove in terms of matching up with the elite playmaking wings that drive a lot of success in playoff basketball right um it it could go a couple different ways for you there's a scenario where it's jazz clippers uh you know in the playoffs and you just execution is awesome defense is on point Rudy Gobert's controlling the paint, ball is moving spectacularly, you're getting offensive contributions from five guys, and that's what it takes, and it's like the underdog story of the year, and you knock off the Clippers, right? It could also get to a situation where Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, you know, combined to average 65 points because you're struggling to uh, keep up with their, uh, you know, their superstar level talent. It's been an issue for Utah in the past, a a playoff series, you know, guys like Chris Paul just, you know, eating uh, the Jazz defense alive, so... Uh, I think that's why there's going to be skepticism. I just think the Jazz are firmly in that category of, you know, prove it once you make the playoffs. And they would have gotten a little bit more respect had they beaten Denver. If Conley's shot goes in, there's no question about that in my mind. But I also think they probably would have lost to the Clippers in that second round series, almost certainly. And, um, you know, we'll see if this new and improved, reloaded, better shooting version um, can take down one of these favorites in the playoffs. It's not impossible, um, but, uh, you know, it's I also... Am pretty much in the skeptical camp, even though I love everything the Jazz stand for as an organization, dating back to the John Stockton heyday. All right, Michael, uh, let's instead of talking about a team that's so good it's almost boring, let's talk about a team that is 
so interesting they could never be called boring. It's the Brooklyn Nets. Are you with me that we should maybe just turn this into a Brooklyn Nets podcast? Okay, okay, okay. I'm not going to go too far <laughs> because we had a number of Open Floor Glow members reach out and say, like, guys, I know the Nets are a big deal, but I, you know, I can't do two and a half hours of James Harden every single week from you guys. And I understand that. But this is the centerpiece story of the league right now. There is absolutely no way around it. You've got these three stars, you know, with with big uh, personalities. You've got the rookie coach and Steve Nash. They're trying to make it work on the fly. You've got role players who are trying to step up and facing all sorts of scrutiny they they haven't really faced before. You've got a franchise and an ownership group that's never really been in this spot, you know, and they're they're investing in a big time way. There's just so many angles to it, Michael. On Wednesday. Kyrie Irving made his first debut with uh, James Harden and, and Kevin Durant together. They gave up 147 points in double overtime to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Career high for Colin Sexton, 42 points. Just got red hot down the stretch. There was a bunch of stuff I didn't like uh, from the Nets late in that game. So I'm curious, uh, you know, where do you want to start on these on the, the new look Brooklyn Nets? What popped to you? from that loss to Cleveland, what's got you most concerned on their behalf? Or was this just, hey, write it off, Colin Sexton, you know, had an out-of-body experience. What are you going to do? I mean, until it changes, defense is the story for me with this team. And their defense was terrible. Like, there's really no way around it. I mean, Cleveland hit some, some shots, for sure. Um, that, you know, Torian Prince went off and the Brooklyn Nets broadcast crew was having good fun with that because Torian Prince has struggled and basically his entire tenure with the Nets before he was traded. Um, But, like, just watching someone like Jared Allen just decimate their front line in the fourth quarter just with put-back dunks and creating uh, second-chance opportunities left and right, like, I am... I'm just really concerned about particularly in the front court their defense and i i don't i don't think deandre jordan is the answer despite you know i will say ben you were really spot on about how um invigorated that the the big three in brooklyn can be for deandre jordan on the offensive end uh he's just like living on lobs and just having a joyous time i would imagine doing so but on the other end he's just like you know i know the strategy is for them to drop just like the Milwaukee Bucks do just like so many other defenses do including the Utah Jazz but like if you just stand under the rim and you don't even come out to contest jump shots and you're just giving up wide open looks I don't care who it is everybody's in the NBA people are good at basketball and I don't think that that strategy is is necessarily going to carry them through the day I think that their offense needs to be like better than the best offense we've ever seen to make up for uh, the shortcomings on the other end. And like there were multiple possessions last night where like Chetty Osman is just knifing through James Harden and Kyrie Irving in transition and just getting to the basket at will. And obviously Colin Sexton had his uh, moment in the sun, even though he's like a legitimately good player, I think. And so the defensive coverages against him just never, uh, there were never any alterations, never any, uh, improvements on that end uh, and I just I'm just down on this team defensively I know it's only one game and I'm not going to go crazy about it but this is what I thought would kind of happen so seeing it is pretty troublesome 
All right, I'm going to unveil a take that I'm going to hope that makes you jealous, Michael. I love to make you jealous with my ideas <laughs> where, where your brain breaks and you're like, God, why didn't I think of it? So I agree 100% with your assessment of DeAndre Jordan, but I have a counter. He is not their weakest defensive link. Kyrie Irving is their weakest defensive link. What do you think? Uh, I don't disagree with that. I That's a problem because think about what you just <laughs> said about DeAndre Jordan. I mean, you ripped him <laughs> to shreds in terms of his defense. Kyrie Irving has got a lot of issues um, on the defensive end. I mean, lack of physicality um, is an issue. Lack of discipline on his man is an issue. Lack of fight through on screens and positioning and just sort of understanding of opponent tendencies is an issue. And I think um, just consistency, play to play, situation to situation, that becomes an issue too. And I think it was a big problem as Colin Sexton is getting hot. I mean, first of all, Kyrie Irving had no answers defensively for him, couldn't cool him off, you know, told everybody after the game, you know, he just had to laugh and smile. It's like, what about playing defense? What about trying to like disrupt (laughs) this run? I mean, guys aren't supposed to score 20 points straight and it's not all Kyrie Irving's fault. Steve Nash just left him out there to get absolutely torched, no adjustments, barely using his other bench guards, uh, you know, guys who have a little bit more defensive acumen just to mix things up. I mean, just essentially saying, hey, guys, superstars, you run the team, go do whatever you want. That's not good enough from Steve Nash. I have a quick question for you. Do you think if Greg Popovich was the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets that Bruce Brown would have played seven minutes last night? Well, I'll tell you this much. There should be no coach in the NBA, not even Tibbs, playing Kevin Durant 50-plus minutes coming off an Achilles in a meaningless mid-January game of a pandemic (laughs) season against the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's unacceptable, period. I mean, it's just terrible. I'm not holding Steve Nash to the Greg Popovich standard. I'm holding him to just basic common sense. It's inexcusable. They've got to fix that. We're going to get to more of Steve Nash a little bit. Uh, Part of my outburst there. But on the defensive end, they, not only do they have Brown, they got Shamit too. Where are these guys? When someone's you know going crazy like that, at least mix it up a little bit. I mean, Kyrie Irving playing 48 minutes after being out for two weeks and supposedly needing a couple extra days to get right because of his conditioning just makes absolutely no sense. So Steve Nash, that one's definitely on your track record. But I guess my, my bigger picture concern here is the combination of Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan. You know, great teams, you can hide one bad defender, right? Hard to hide both. You know, hard to hide too, especially when they're at arguably the two most important spots, you know, point of attack and your your backline defensive player. Right. That's rough. And so they're going to have to figure out some solutions. They can't stand pat with this roster. And, and I do think that Dinwiddie's injury is looming massive here because he's a pretty good trade chip, right? You could have addressed one of those two problems for sure, or you would have had greater ability to trade Kyrie Irving and not think twice about it to try to address some of these problems in the short term. Not having Dinwiddie definitely holds them back from being their best version this season. I still like Brooklyn a lot. I still trust in their offensive efficiency ceiling an awful lot. But you know, Kyrie Irving, this is not just a, a center problem, I guess, from the Brooklyn Nets defensive standpoint. I want to kind of change that narrative a little bit. Let's focus on Kyrie on the defensive end, right? You're now the third option on offense. Uh, You're the number three guy. You're going to have to bring more effort in that role on the defensive end. You can't just be a one-way player. And he was absolutely a one-way player against Cleveland. Look, I'm not going to disagree with you at all. Um, uh, Great points. I mean, the minute allocation here is just so questionable. I, I, I don't understand 
uh, real quick, now that we were just – you mentioned Steve Nash. Starting Jeff Green over Joe Harris. Can someone explain this to me? Yes. Like, <laughs> I, I don't get it at all. I know Jeff Green has been hitting – he's been hitting the three ball a little bit lately. Um but it's Jeff Green, and Joe Harris is like one of the five best spot-up shooters alive. And if I had to create a basketball player in a lab who I would want to uh, be next to Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden in a lineup, Joe Harris would be it. So Dude, he's a baller. He had some really good offensive rebound. You know, key plays alive, hustle plays late in that game. He just has a nose for the basketball. I like Joe Harris a lot. Yeah, he's great. Um, so I, I just don't understand. I know he played 42 minutes last night because I, I, you know, there was just like the minutes were all over the place in the rotation there. I don't, it's just very strange. Um, but well, look, let's just keep crushing Steve Nash while we're at it. I'm glad you brought that point up. <laughs> I've got two more beefs with that Cleveland game. And I think that okay. they're emblematic of wider problems. We talked even before the Harden trade, Michael, you'll remember I was upset about Brooklyn's clutch offense, right? Too much Kyrie Irving one-on-one, too much settling, too much Kevin Durant watching the action take place, not enough great shots. Kyrie Irving can always create a good shot. Even a contested jumper from Kyrie is a good shot. Good is not good enough when you've got Kevin Durant and James Harden watching in crunch time. He had multiple forced contested jumpers that he missed with tired legs down the stretch. He got caught up too much in the mano-a-mano with Colin Sexton which is not what you want at all. I mean, I mean, Kevin Durant and James Harden watching a duel between Kyrie Irving and Colin Sexton is not title contention basketball. It's just not. And the coach has to have some level of influence there late in games to get better stuff, to not just let the players do whatever the heck they want. Kyrie also had a player control foul, uh, just you know, being too aggressive, you know, ser- searching the, um, the game-winning play uh, rather than just you know, playing the, the way that he should. The other thing that really bothered me, Michael, it's a smaller thing, but I'm actually okay with this general philosophy of Steve Nash. I'm going to be a hands-off coach. I'm going to trust my superstars. Once they sort of get the pecking order right, or Katie is always involved, Harden's got the ball in his hands late in games, I think it's actually going to be good for them to just roll the ball out and let those guys go to work because they're amazingly talented players and great instincts, great basketball IQ, all that stuff. But when you're a coach in that situation, you're going to make your money on the, the minor things, the matchups defensively that we were talking about, and ATOs, right? They get the ball left sideline, 1.2 seconds left in the, in the first overtime. Tie game. This is their chance to win, right? This is like when Nick Nurse would pull out some crazy play that he found on a VHS tape in 1993, and it would turn into a game winner, right? This is where he's made his reputation as a coach. Steve Nash has Kyrie Irving inbound the ball. He's got James Harden behind half court, and he's got Kevin Durant as the obvious only option in the paint coming towards the basketball. You play that play out, Kyrie Irving triple checks on the pass. He misses Kevin Durant completely when he breaks towards the ball. (laughs) He thinks twice about it. He thinks three times about it, and he finally puts a bailout pass deep into the corner for KD to try to, you know, throw up this contested tough turnaround over Larry Nance Jr., Meanwhile, Harden barely moves at center court because he's the decoy and nobody else, including Joe Harris or anybody else, is even you know working themselves open as a second option. Steve Nash, that is not good enough for an ATO in that situation with the game on the line. You have got to do a lot better than that. First of all, Harden should be inbounding the ball. 
not Kyrie Irving. Harden's your best passer. Trust him. He's your point guard. Everybody agreed. Put the ball in his hands. He would find Kevin Durant when Kevin Durant was open. He wouldn't have thought twice. And I actually like Kyrie Irving, who's quicker and more elusive uh, and capable of hitting shots on the run, absolutely, more in that decoy role than James Harden. Those two guys should have been flipped on that play, and they should have had some other action going. If Kyrie Irving was going to miss the first and most obvious option, give him another option. They just didn't even have it on that play. So I'm really nitpicking on this one particular sequence, but they just mailed it in, and that's not good enough. Right now, Michael, they have Kevin Durant in this absolute prime, Kyrie Irving, and now they've got James Harden too. And right now, they're 5-5 five and five in clutch games this season. How is that possible? I understand guys have been in and out of the lineup, but you got to do better than that going forward. So Steve Nash, to me, is on notice. Step it up, man. It's time. You, you've been hitting the, uh, the struggles in, the, in crunch time for this offense basically since like the second game of the season. So if that is, uh, you know, if that is something that continues through the, the postseason, um, I mean, you're already an article for predicting the Harden to Brooklyn trade in the first place. Um, but this will definitely solidify your reputation. Um, two quick points I want to make. Number one, Cleveland, we should mention, was in a zone for a lot of last night's game. And I don't really want to blame Steve Nash so much for uh, how Brooklyn kind of responded to the zone because they had plenty of successful possessions. But I'm just kind of like, you know, if you have KD on the floor against a 2-3 zone, just he should flash to the middle of the, the free throw line, the nail, like every single time until Cleveland is just like, I, we can't do this anymore. Like, And so, I, you know, I didn't really see that. Um, yeah, that's a that's great what, point. You know, these guys spend years coming up with zone-busting offenses, right? Here's a zone-busting offense, number seven. Give him the ball. There's no <laughs> zone in the world that can stop Kevin Durant. And then the other point I wanted to make really quick is just, you know, a lot of people are talking about Harden, the playmaker, the passer, etc. He's always been great. Um, nothing he's doing is surprising me. But one thing I've seen from him is like this weird, uh, like lack of aggression that I've, I, I can't recall maybe ever seeing James, from James Harden when he has a basketball. In his hands. Like, last night, uh, there was two minutes left in the overtime period. Harden got downhill, and he had a wide-open layup. And 10 times out of 10, when he was wearing a Rockets jersey, he would have either risen up and finished at the rim or, like, drawn a foul because someone panicked and had to hack him. And last night, he, he looked at the rim, and instead of taking off and finishing... He kicked the ball back over his head to Kevin Durant, who eventually made a jump shot. But it was just like the passivity that Harden is playing with is really interesting to me. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. But it's just like he clearly does not want to uh, be the guy that he was for so long. And I think that he is conscious of the criticism of this dribble, 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 iso basketball that frankly he was terrific at and like look they got you because you are James Harden and you are really good at scoring the basketball so I I, I've, eventually I assume he's gonna shake shake out of these habits but right now it's just it's it's just strange to see him make plays like that honestly no I, I hear you for sure look I think he's walking on eggshells a little bit 
around Kyrie Irving, right? You know, making sure that he's feeling completely empowered. You look at the shot distribution last night. I mean, Kyrie easily takes the most shots for Brooklyn. I really don't think that was a coincidence. I think they were trying to like welcome him back. It's been a, a, a touch and go situation these last couple of weeks for Brooklyn. And so I would understand why they would want to do that with him specifically. I also think James is just assist hunting in fashion that I've really never seen before. I mean, he is out there just trying to get as many passes. Mm-hmm. He wants to be seen as unselfish. I think he will cool off with that a little bit as they go, but they really do need his passing. It's going to be a central he, uh, aspect of, of balancing their offense between the stars. He kicked out to Reggie Perry for a corner three when he was standing underneath the basket last night. Like, <laughs> what is going on? I, like, stuff like that is just uh, like, I, we're, maybe I'm just overreacting to one game, a couple games, whatever, but it's just like a complete, I just never thought I would see James Harden play basketball this way. No, I hear you. Look, I just want to say real quick thanks to JC from France, Dylan, Scott. They all wrote in really awesome questions about the Nets. We're just not going to have time to get to them. But Michael, I did want to read one from Jackson, kind of a love letter to the Brooklyn Nets. And I want to get your take on this as we try to get our minds wrapped around this new era of Nets basketball. Jackson writes, I'm writing to you as a bummed out Nets fan after the James Harden trade. I lived in New York City when the Nets were climbing back out from the depths of the Pierce Garnett aftermath. I used to enjoy reasonably cheap tickets and a team that played hard under Coach Atkinson. While the main draw was often the Nets opponent, it was encouraging to see the development of players like Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, Joe Harris, and even D'Angelo Russell. The Yes broadcast team with Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustak felt like a personal treat for those flipping on a midweek Nets game. I even found myself shouting at the TV when the Nets played the 76ers hard in the first round of 2019. Fast forward to today and the team that I love is decimated. Coach Kenny built a great culture, and he goes because he won't start DeAndre Jordan. I have no ill will against Steve Nash, but it seems like Atkinson builds a team, then gets the boot. Last season was a wash. We gave max money to an injured player and Kyrie Irving, who was also soon injured. I tried to get into it this year, especially as the NBA is definitively better with a healthy Kevin Durant, but I was flabbergasted watching Kyrie Irving look off Kevin Durant. Now we've added James Harden. Is there a less likable basketball team in history? Maybe Air Bud's opponent? What about the Monstars? I suppose my larger point is that the binary evaluation of NBA teams, can or can they win a title, is too narrow. Why is it a failure to have a team of players I felt like I saw grow up gradually improving into a playoff team? Why does all the analysis orbit to if you can add a player like Kyrie or KD or James Harden, you've got to do it? I think it's a failure to achieve nuance in the discussion of evaluating NBA franchises, and it's poisoning the league. It has killed the Nets team I really liked. I'd watch the Knicks, but uh, MSG gets blacked out in Connecticut thanks to Dolan. So then he asks, do you guys think... You guys think I'll come around if the Nets win the title? Will my sadness wear off if the Nets start hanging 160 points on teams every night? Or or am I in for a long future of watching Joe Harris get caught in a one-on-three after Kyrie Irving forces a jumper that bricks and leads to a fast break? I mean, it's a beautiful email. I mean, he's hitting on an awful lot of um, thoughts Mm -hmm. here, Michael. I would say there was a whole group of Clippers fans who went through a very similar evolution, uh, kind of pre and post uh, Kawhi Leonard, where they love that upstart Clippers team under Doc Rivers, the overachieving group. And then the stars came in and it felt a little bit more soulless and they didn't feel as likable. And they were kind of like yearning for the, for the old days. And I, I would just say, 
no building team like the Nets existed lasts forever, right? You can have a honeymoon season. You can continue to show progress a little bit. But in the modern NBA, that stuff is fleeting. And that's why there's such an emphasis uh, from the media on acquiring stars. But also keep in mind on ownership groups from uh, acquiring stars, right? They didn't trust that the the uh, overachieving, plucky Brooklyn Nets were really going to go anywhere meaningful. And they weren't. And they also probably didn't trust that that was going to be a sustainable formula because it's really hard to sustain anything now with the short player contracts, guys coming in and out. And so that's why you see, especially big market organizations, uh, you know, star chasing as shamelessly as they do, because that's how you can kind of sustain success and, and really have a winner year after year is keep the stars happy and, and try to do exactly what Houston was doing for years with James Harden. So I understand why that's frustrating. Absolutely. I wouldn't necessarily blame the media for encouraging them to get stars because I think that is a proven formula. I would say that there's a lot of fans out there that feel the same way you do, that they don't have that same emotional bond with their teams because the players come in and come out so quickly. And I do think that's a a real issue the NBA is going to have to uh, address. Um, And I don't know exactly how they do it, whether it's you go back to longer contracts or you you tie in other incentives to keep guys in certain markets, whatever else it might be. Um, you're not alone. So that would be my message, my message to Jackson at the same time, bro, you're overhyping those Nets teams, man. They were way, way, way overhyped in my opinion, from an outsider's perspective, they topped out. Yeah. Yeah. And they just weren't that cool. I mean, look, bottom line, (laughs) D'Angelo Russell, not that fun to watch. Right. Um, and I understand why, you know, people would, would, uh, look at guys like Jared Allen and, and be really grateful for years of service and development. I totally get that. I'm sure it was sad to see him get traded, but trust me when I say watching Kevin Durant and James Harden together will be more fun than the D'Angelo Russell. Maybe we'll get lucky and win one playoff game experience. I, you know, I have a lot to say here. I think number one, if you re-signed, D'Angelo Russell to a max contract instead of signing Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, the the complaints would come from a different angle, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, just look at Minnesota right now. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns is out. Minnesota has the worst record, I think, in the league, if not just mm-hmm. the West. And D'Angelo is not able to put that team on his back. And I think they blew like a six-point lead or a five-point lead in the last minute of a game last night on a completely heartbreaking fashion. And again, you know, that, where's your guy stepping up to, to take over and to save that game? He's not. And he's he wasn't that guy, so I'm with you. You would be a lot more upset watching this version of D'Angelo Russell than you are watching this version of Kyrie, even though we've just spent the last 20 minutes kind of crushing Kyrie from every angle. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, I think, like, number two for me is just like, look, I watched a Brooklyn Nets-Cleveland Cavaliers basketball game on a night where the Boston Celtics were playing the Philadelphia 76ers. So, like, I chose the Nets-Cavs game to watch live. That should really tell anyone listening who has listened to this podcast consistently about how important uh, the Brooklyn Nets are with their star power. They're just, they are the center of the basketball universe, as you said, Ben. Um, from a fan's perspective, like you just have to realize that like we're all rooting for laundry. That's what it is. If you're a Nets fan, you're not really rooting for Jared Allen and Joe Harris and D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie. You're rooting for the Brooklyn Nets. And like at the end of the day, winning is everything. So uh, like I don't I don't think anyone should be surprised or caught off guard um, 
that they are so aggressively trying to get uh, the star talent that they have acquired. Like, it shouldn't shock anyone that they gave up what they gave up to get James Harden. Now, I do I do wonder, you know, if Spencer Dinwiddie never got hurt, um, just that impact on their calculus combined with Kyrie Irving just deciding not to play basketball for a couple of weeks. Um, I do wonder just about that, but we'll never know the answer. Um, but it's just like, you know, there are 25 organizations, 23, 24 organizations and fan bases that would just like hit their mother in the head with a hammer to have Kevin Durant, James Harden and Kyrie Irving on their basketball team. I would hope so, not, Michael. We don't encourage that. Come on. No, we're not encouraging it. We're just, it's just a facts-based statement. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's like, you want to see your team win. I think like that's for me personally, when I watch my favorite basketball team, the Boston Celtics, like I, I do like rooting for them. Usually there aren't too many rosters that are put together that I just, that I just hate and despise and hate watch. Um, like I, I just want them to win. That's like, <laughs> that's what it is. I don't know. I, what is the point of, of basketball of, of competition, if not victory and defeat? Like that is, that's why they play the games. Like I, I don't, maybe am I crazy? When am I just, no, I don't, not, not at all, but I can understand why people wouldn't be rushing out to buy Kyrie and James Harden jerseys after the last couple of years. And I can understand why if you're a Nets fan, like, you know, bringing those two guys in would require, you know, a lengthy swallowing sound effect and like a gulp, you know, like, okay, here we go. And it would be hard to embrace those guys. I completely understand it. Um, we'll see how it plays out. I hope that, uh, Jackson, I hope you check back in like every month or two. I want to know about your evolution as a Nets fan. Uh, I'm guaranteeing you this. You're going to get a lot of awesome ups. You're going to get some downs along the way. This is not the most stable organization from a defensive standpoint, from a personality standpoint and all those kinds of things. I think it's going to be a real ride. I think it's going to be, um, you know, something that you're just not going to be able to take your eyes off. At least I hope so. And, uh, we'll see if that is how it plays out for you. And, just bury the memories of those old Nets teams, okay? You don't have to live in the past. They were what they were. You had a good time. Let's all move forward and never speak of them again. And by the way, Kenny Atkinson, no shot coaching Kevin Durant. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. It was obvious as soon as Katie signed that he wasn't going to be the guy. And it played out basically right on schedule. Again, um, you know, deserves all the credit in the world for what he built there in Brooklyn, but that wasn't going to be the the guy who was going to oversee this chapter. And I think it's better for him. It's better for the Nets. It's better for the stars that he's not there. And you can kind of tip his hat and just acknowledge, hey, look, you know, philosophical changes. Um, that's okay. Uh, and let's move forward. All right, Michael, on that note, they can email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts. You can find us by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get to our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. As he mentioned, he's got stories this week on Zion Williamson and CJ McCollum. Be sure to go check those out on SI.com. Guys, I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver, on Twitter at Ben.Golver. Please support all my work, WashingtonPost.com slash sports. All right, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.
Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that. Because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it. Here, in this place, this is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com. Watch sensational Grand Slam action on Tennis Channel as top stars clash at Roland Garros in Paris. Catch all the excitement. What a shot. Come on now. With Tennis Channel's comprehensive coverage as we bring you live matches and nightly encores, plus match previews. That is awesome. Don't miss one of the greatest events in all of sports. Roland Garros, the French Open. Daily live coverage on Tennis Channel now through June 9th. 